following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to the Retro Network Time Machine, your vehicle to the past. Sit back and listen to stories of beloved childhood memories, teenage angst, and coming-of-age tales as told by the people who lived them. The time circuits are set, so let's travel to the past with today's episode. Baseball, written and narrated by Jason Gross. I think baseball is the most well-known and beloved team sport in America over the last 100 years. Legends of the game like Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle, could be identified by even the most casual fan. Some could likely tell you which teams they played for, while others, their home run totals. Diehard fans would likely spout out their batting averages and remember the first time they watched their hero take the field. But no matter how big or small of a fan you are, people know baseball. But I'm not here to talk about professional players or baseball as a spectator sport. People know baseball because they grew up playing baseball. In some form or fashion, whether it was required at your school or for recreation, I guarantee you that you played baseball as a kid. Maybe it was in your backyard with a thick plastic bat and a Nerf-like ball. Maybe it was in a nearby field with a skinny yellow bat and that white ball with the weird holes in it. Maybe it was on a paved street with a large rubber kickball. Maybe it was in a gravel parking lot with a rock and a random stick you found in the woods. Or maybe it was at the local Little League field with a team of your peers in bright colored uniforms. No matter what your experience was, we all played some form of baseball. The weird thing for me is, it was my dad that encouraged me to play baseball. The same man who was not a fan of any professional sports in the least. Unless the athlete was behind the wheel of a car or occasionally holding a golf club, dad had no problem telling you that watching team sports on TV was a complete waste of time. But one great thing about my dad was he never had any problem watching and encouraging amateurs, namely me, as we attempted to play team sports. Dad supported me no matter the cost, buying me the equipment I needed, baseball gloves, bats, balls, batting gloves, uniforms. Dad would not only play catch with me for hours on end, he would launch baseballs high in the air in our backyard like a human pitching machine. It's probably the reason why he's had to undergo shoulder surgery. Dad was in the stands, too, cheering on his only son during the home runs and the strikeouts. Even though he couldn't tell you who played shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates, he knew his son played shortstop for the Kerwinsville Lions. It was baseball that brought me and my dad together throughout my childhood. I still have pictures of me in the early 80s when I was around 4 or 5 years old, in front of our house holding that slim banana-colored bat. Wiffle ball was like the gateway drug to my baseball career. There was always something about that slender yellow bat and trying to hit that whistling white ball with the holes in it. My neighborhood friend Tim and I played a good bit of one-on-one wiffle ball back in our day. We quickly learned that he had the best yard to play, thanks to the wooden post and rail fence that ran parallel to the long driveway 
that led to his house at the end of Lippert Street. It was made for the perfect home-run fence to a huge pasture of a yard in front of his house. As we both grew older, we graduated to tennis balls and often metal and wooden bats. That extended our playing field quite a bit after continuously hunting for the tennis balls that went over the fence, bounced on the driveway, and careened into the nearby woods. Baseball had a grip on me and Tim in our childhood years, and it would only grow tighter as we eventually played on the same organized team together. Around the time of the 88 World Series, we decided to buy new baseball hats just so we could pretend we were the LA Dodgers against the Oakland Athletics. One thing I always did during our Wiffle Ball World Series was emulate the wind-ups of famous pitchers. There was the side-head tilt of Oral Hershiser and the long-winding sidearm of Dennis Eckersley. I was a Pirates fan, so I often used the slow wind-up of Doug Drabeck or the overhead and inward tuck of John Smiley. But baseball was there in other forms, too. In school, kickball was always on the menu for P.E. class. My small private school didn't have a baseball team, but we did have a diamond with a wooden pole and chicken wire backstop. Beyond right field and out to center field was a pretty steep incline that eventually led to the highway. Our groundskeeper hardly ever cut the grass short back there, so it made for a nice way to stop the ball somewhat when someone would bounce a home run over the hill. In my middle school years, we actually played in the church parking lot that was right next door to the school. The lot was paved and on just enough of an incline that you could let gravity pitch the kickball if you wanted to. The incline also seemed to make it more difficult to kick the ball straight at someone and not popping up in the air for an easy out. We had these orange rubber bases that we placed on the asphalt. First base was always right inside the large power pole in the lot, which conveniently doubled as our foul pole. Our games were typically co-ed, and me, the ultimate competitor, sometimes used the strategy of trying to kick the ball at a girl who wasn't the most athletically inclined. It worked a few times until our PE teacher, Mr. Moore, would give us a dirty look. But that was me. Every baseball or kickball game was a major competition, no matter if it was in PE class or on a real diamond. I guess that drive to win began with playing organized baseball at a young age. I started out in the mini league in 1984, drafted by the Montreal Expos. My dad always referred to them as the Elk, because if you remember, the Expos logo was this swirly red, white, and blue M. The red swirl on the left curled up to look like a lowercase e, while the white portion was straight like an L and the blue portion swirled back in the opposite direction like a lowercase k. Our uniform consisted of a light blue hat with that elk logo and matching t-shirt with expos written across the chest. Most of us wore blue jeans as our pants and I'm sure my mom was more than happy for me to use my grass-stained Levi's. So while I was on the miniature Expos squad, we played at two ball fields, one in Grampian, PA, that resembled the one at my school, and a truer form of a baseball diamond in Kerwinsville, adjacent to the high school football stadium. Dad went out and bought gloves for both of us to play catch, and he also bought my first baseball bat, which was a black Louisville Slugger. He spray-painted several stripes of various colors just above the handle, so it would stand out among the other kids' bats at the ball field. Yeah, it did. 
It would eventually be on display for the whole ball field to see when it broke during an at-bat in my second year. After a sharp hit of the baseball, it twirled towards second base like a splintering rainbow swirl pop. I still have two trophies from those mini-league years for second place in 1984 and third place in 1985. Yeah, I guess they were giving out trophies to every kid, even back in the 80s. But the league really wasn't set up to be like real baseball. Every kid on the team was in the field, and every kid got to bat each inning unless three outs were miraculously recorded. I still remember being out in the field and yelling, Last batter! in unison with all of my teammates when our opponent's final player came to the plate. I also remember making a deal with myself to never become a pitcher. This was a coach pitch league where your coach would pitch you the ball and an opposing player would stand next to him should a hit ball come his way. I distinctly remember one game where I was elected to play the pitcher position and taking one for the team, right in the chest. After I shook it off, I walked around with a baseball-sized black and blue mark for a week, and I decided I wasn't going to be a pitcher. I later reneged. After mini-league, I tried out for little league. I was drafted by the Kerwinsville Lions, and as luck would have it, or maybe by design, my neighborhood friend Tim was also drafted to the same team. All the teams were named after local sponsors, there was the Kerwinsville and Grampian Lions Club, the Moose Lodge, Bloom Electric, the VFW. Ah, oh, these names bring back so many memories. My Little League baseball years were definitely my favorite. The rituals and perks of baseball were what really bonded with me and my teammates. Our field had a concession stand that was mainly run by the parents of the players. The winning team each night got a free drink, which typically came in a small paper cup branded with the Pepsi logo. That was a real motivation to play well in the field. Yeah, make the parents and the coach proud, but your choice of a half dozen soda flavors was tangible. I quickly learned when such a reward was earned, what you ordered mattered. Pepsi? Mountain Dew? Nah. Those were what babies ordered. Real ballplayers ordered a suicide. Huh? Yes, the gritty, baseball-sliding, gum-chewing, cadence-calling ballplayers of the late 80s drank suicides. That's when your bartender for the night would give you a splash of every flavor in the cup. And it was nasty. I later learned to wait until most of my team players had gone through the line, and then I could subtly request the Pepsi. It looked the same as a suicide, so I could get away with telling people, oh, of course I got a suicide, when they asked. Other baseball rituals included chewing mass quantities of bubblegum. There were a lot of great choices back in the day. Some flavors in the dugout included Big League Chew, the shredded bubblegum that came in that tobacco pouch. It came in different flavors and colors, but I remember stashing wads of the traditional pink bubblegum flavored shreds into my cheek. And you could add a few lengths when you needed the flavor back. Then there was Bazooka Joe that came with a comic. Sometimes you could even save the wrappers and mail in with a few bucks to get a t-shirt or some other prize. But I quickly learned it was more of a gimmick than anything because it lost its flavor really quick. And at a nickel apiece, it could dent your allowance pretty quick as well. Then the most affordable option, double bubble, which was usually a penny each. The cylindrical shaped confection smelled like bubble gum, but about the time that it hit your tongue, the flavor magically disappeared. 
It didn't stop most of my teammates from adding more and more until they could barely make a sound when coach asked them a question. I loved my little league coach. He was a large African-American man whose nickname was Bibby. Coach Bibby was hard-nosed when it came to practices, but as long as you followed his golden rule, my way or the highway, he would really open up and teach you more than baseball. One major thing he taught me unintentionally was never follow stereotypes. Coach Bibby was a fan of all kinds of music. Hearing his white Chevy S10 blazer pull into practice with John Bon Jovi screaming to lay your hands on him was not uncommon. It really opened my eyes that it didn't matter what race or age you were, music can be enjoyed by everybody. His variety of favorites really opened up my ears to all genres of music in the late 80s and early 90s. Coach Bibby's brother, who was nicknamed Bear, was coach of the Kerwinsville High School baseball team at the time, and that gave our Little League team an unfair advantage during inclement weather. Rainy days meant we could still practice at the makeshift facility that was on the second floor of a downtown building, right on top of Fox's Pizza Den. And when I say makeshift, it had just enough space to house a batting cage with a pitching machine and a back room where two-by-two wooden pitching mounds were nailed to the floor. One such practice during my rookie season, Coach Bibby popped in Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel. And after some swings in the batting cage, he took me to the mounds in that back room to see if I had what it took to pitch half a game. I apparently did, because the next season my teammate Adam and I would share a six-inning game while our towering all-star pitcher Brad would handle duties for the other games. I grew to love pitching. I mean, I had practiced the wind-ups of big league pitchers for years, and now I got to invent my own for the most part. Coach Bibby liked the big wind-ups, so instead of a sidestep style, Adam and I both had an overhead wind-up. It took a while to get used to, and I distinctly remember both of us knocking off our baseball caps to the ground during games. And it didn't take long for us to realize we needed to deliver the ball anyway and not worry about the cap. Pitchers don't get to stop and start, otherwise the base runners get to move up a base for what is known as a balk. There was also that time that more than my hat got dirty after a pitching mishap. Our field was not the most well-kept Little League field in the state. It had some drainage issues, particularly in front of the home team's dugout. A large puddle of varying sizes would creep towards the first baseline on occasion. One such game, the puddle was definitely lingering, with me on the mound to start the game. You know where I'm going with this. It was either the first or second inning, I hurled the ball and the batter hit a pop fly towards the home team's dugout. Now in my experience calling... I got it was a serious move and one of authority. If you called I got it and were known to let the ball hit the ground, you lost all cred among your teammates. When you called I got it, it was your responsibility to position yourself and catch the ball. Well, before I could survey the area, I immediately went into I got it mode and ran towards the trajectory of the ball. But before I could stop myself, my foot slips and one leg enters the Black Lagoon. Did I mention that our uniform was white pants that year? Yes, for the remaining innings that I pitched that game, I had a nice brown stain from cheek to ankle, and I'm not sure to this day how my mother ever got that stain out of those pants. 
My final season of playing Little League Baseball was in 1989, and I made the All-Star team. It was a pretty cool accomplishment, and I know my dad was especially proud of it, because he bought his own All-Star cap, and his would receive much more wear than mine over the years. I remember it being kind of weird, teaming up with the kids that you batted against the entire season. Kids that would yell a cadence from the other side of the field, Batter up, no good, can hit the ball, swing! Yeah, it was annoying. I remember trying to bark back at teams from the field, but Coach Bibby was having nothing of it. He told us, If you're going to talk, it better be to each other. So we offered battle cries of encouragement instead of nonsense. But here I was with a team of opponents and being stuck in left field rather than my normal shortstop position. But after the initial abnormalities, it was an honor to represent my league in my hometown for at least two games. I guess the crowning achievement on my all-star resume was I hit the only home run on our team during the regular season. I didn't own a bat at the time, so I usually just chose one from the bag that Coach Bibby or his son Brett, who played first base and was the only lefty on the team, toted to every practice and game. One day, my teammate Mike, who we call Greener after his surname, showed up with a shiny new bat. It was the brightest color orange I had seen outside of hunting season, and everyone wanted to use it. The only girl on our team, Mandy, who was the most soft-spoken second baseman I ever played with, didn't mind attracting some attention by using that sun-kissed stick. I initially stuck with my usual selection of bats, as superstitious players are. But by the time the fifth inning rolled around and we were down a couple of runs, I decided what the heck. Bases were loaded when I came up to the plate, and a few pitches into the at-bat, smack! I got a hold of a pitch with that orange bat. It made such a high-frequency ping that I think it woke up sleeping dogs within a mile radius. The baseball sailed way over the center field wall. A grand slam home run. My teammates didn't really know how to celebrate because it just didn't happen. None of us hit with power, so witnessing a home run was the equivalent of a spaceship dropping off E.T. in left center. After the game on the ride home, I realized, hey, I might get my name in the newspaper. Our local paper, The Progress, posted box scores of the Little League games with pitchers and the top batting performers usually getting a mention. I thought, a Grand Slam home run could make the sports front page. The next day, Dad handed me the newspaper that was flipped over to the sports section. He said, well, your name is in there. I looked, and sure enough, it was. Gross helps Bloom Electric to win over the Kerwinsville Lions. Oh, no. The dang reporter screwed up the teams. I still kind of resent that my crowning achievement was listed as a win for our opponents. But fast forward to my first All-Star game, which was at our home field in Kerwinsville. I was nervous. The crowd was the biggest I had ever seen at our little stadium, and some of my extended family was there, including my uncle and my gram. As luck would have it, Coach Bibby was one of the All-Star coaches, and his familiar bag of bats gave me some kind of comfort. I stepped up to the plate for my first at bat, and I swear Roger Clements was on the mound, or at least his 12-year-old equivalent. The kid was throwing faster than any pitcher in our league. I was mainly a line drive hitter, so I hustled down the first baseline anytime the ball was in play. And then, smack! I pinged a pitch towards right center, and it just barely clears the wall. A two-run home run. I was so surprised that I didn't even realize it went over the fence until I was halfway to second base. 
I looked back at the crowd erupting, and I was so elated that I literally almost forgot to touch home plate. My teammates lined up outside the dugout, as was the custom, but I bolted for them instead of touching home. Luckily, the guy on deck pointed out my mistake before I left the field of play. We would go on to lose the game, and also the subsequent game, in the double elimination tournament, but I'll never forget that moment in time. And wouldn't you know it, the progress made up for the heinous error on my Grand Slam. The next day in the sports section, there I was in black and white. A picture of me high-fiving the teammate that I drove in at home plate. And while it was a loss in the books, it was a win for me and my dad, who helped me so much along the way. The next season, which was my final year in baseball, I was drafted into the Senior League in Kerwinsville. It was pretty much unmemorable. In fact, I don't even remember which team I was on. It was during the year I moved to Clearfield, thanks to my parents' divorce. In some ways, I was still trying to hang on to my Kerwinsville roots, with my dad still living in our home. The commute to Clearfield was only eight miles away, but my love for the game must have persuaded my mom and Graham to transport me and my dusty baseball gear to practices and games. It was pretty fitting that my Graham drove a 1970-something Plymouth Duster but those slow rides to the ball field weren't the reason I transitioned to basketball after this season. First, a bad omen happened during practice one day. My normal glove had been beaten beyond repair, so Dad gave me his glove to use for the season. Well, one day I was warming up. I failed to catch the ball even after it went into my glove. Upon further inspection, I noticed a nice baseball-sized hole in the webbing. Dad found a local cobbler to stitch it back up for me, but it didn't help the next problem. I wasn't really fond of my new coach, like I was Coach Bibby, and it didn't help that he liked to chew tobacco. His refuge could be found all around the dugout, which included hitting my baseball glove a couple times under the bench. I guess the final straw was that I was a rookie again. After coming off an all-star season and hitting two home runs, I was the new kid on the block again. Coach put me playing the hot spot at third base, which I had never played before. Now trying to retrieve balls even faster and harder than ever, I was turning into an error machine. Not to mention, out of the blue, my coach calls me in to pitch in relief one game, having no prep at the beginning of the season for holding runners on base now that they could lead off and throwing from the stretch. But despite the new environment, I pushed forward, striking out the first batter I faced, who was the same kid I drove in when I hit the All-Star Game home run. The next batter was not so kind to my debut. He was a large round kid I had remembered from Little League because his nickname was Tank. He lived up to the hype, too. I sent a fastball down the middle that was launched into orbit and finally cratered into the field beyond center field. I'm pretty sure he earned some frequent flyer miles with that at bat. So with my senior league not going my way, and my dad eventually moving to Clearfield himself, my loss of excitement and eligibility to play was what ended my organized baseball career. But wouldn't you know it, the Wiffle Ball World Series started up again. Not with Tim, but with three brothers I got to know well in my high school years. The oldest brother Kurt and I became friends through basketball, and visiting his house occasionally turned into a two-on-two battle of pitcher mound outs and ghost runners. Since his two younger brothers played organized baseball, it was only fair for Kurt and I to team up since we were retired. They had a nice field next to their driveway basketball court with a volleyball net that made for a perfect makeshift home run fence in right field. 
Just when I thought I was done with baseball, it all came rushing back. Several years later, Kurt was the best man at my wedding and sent a toast up during his speech to the Wiffleball World Series and our memories. Those baseball memories are thankfully still tangible to this day. I still have those two small trophies from my years on the elk. I still have the yellowed newspaper clippings of my home runs. And believe it or not, I still have the grand slam ball that I hit with that bright orange bat. Still dirty from landing in the mud beyond the fence that night. And you can still see my faded teenage handwriting on the ball commemorating the game's score and the opponent. Trophies and souvenirs I think can be taken for granted. I don't, because holding those tangibles now are instant nostalgia and really jolt my memories of a wonderful game, baseball. Thanks for listening to the Retro Network Time Machine, your vehicle to the past. Please subscribe in your favorite listening app and leave a star rating. If you'd like to share your thoughts in response to this episode, dial the Retro Network's 24-hour hotline and leave a voicemail. Dial 678-825-5876, or if it's easier to remember, 678-TALK-TRN. That's 678-TALK-TRN. Leave a message up to three minutes, and we'll play it back in a future episode. Be sure to follow the Retro Network on Facebook, X, and Instagram, at TRN Social, for the latest articles and podcasts on the network. Join us next time for another great Gen X story on the Retro Network Time Machine, your vehicle to the past. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.